title of my sermon is The Fingerprints of God in Our Lives. And when you think about fingerprints, generally, I mean, we all have children. We know you can sometimes see them if there's enough of them, and depending on what's on their fingers. But a lot of the time, fingerprints are something you can't see. They're not obvious to you. They're, they're there, and they give evidence. We all know what can happen in the court system, for example. If they can find fingerprints, what do fingerprints prove? They prove that you were there, that someone was there. If they find the fingerprint, they know that that person was there. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the fingerprints of God in our lives. Because there's lots of times we go through things in our lives, like a flood, Someone could say, gee, John, Clarice, you're Christians. Why'd God let that happen to you guys? Grant, Tammy, what's wrong with you guys? Your house is flooded. You're Christians. It's not supposed to happen that way. It's just not true. Those are lies of the enemy. And we're going to look at the book of Esther for the next few weeks. And I am really excited to look at the book of Esther. It's one that you may not have read. It's an amazing story. As you look through the book of Esther... It's a very unique book in a number of ways that I'll talk about in just a few seconds. But one of the things that make it very unique, God nor Jesus nor Jerusalem are mentioned once in the book of Esther. Not once. But as you go through the book of Esther and as you read it and look at it and study it, you will see the fingerprints of God on every single page. God is moving. God is acting. Even when we don't see it, we don't understand it. When we look back in our lives, and hopefully you take time to do that once in a while and reflect on those things that you have come through, that the Lord has brought you through, you begin to see where God was in that. Even when I didn't see him, even when I didn't understand what was going on, even when I really didn't like what was going on, God was in it. God was in it. And we're going to be looking at that in the book of Esther. First thing I want to remind us of, and hopefully we all know this, but what we find in the Word of God is true. I'm going to refer refer to it as a story of the book of Esther. And sometimes we have this idea that a story is a fantasy or fiction. This is a true story. Much of this book of Esther can be documented historically because of the people involved in historical events that took place at the very time that is being talked about here in the book of Esther. It's a real story involving real people, and it demonstrates to us that we have a real God who's involved in our lives on a regular basis, like daily. He knows what's going on even when we don't get it. He knows the outcome when we've conjured up in our imagination a different outcome. We don't see what he sees, and we don't know what he knows. The book of Esther could be summed up with this this way. It's about how God delivered Israel from death through his chosen servant who interceded for his people on their behalf, and they are now victorious over their enemies. As we go through the book, we'll see that chosen servant. There was more than one, but Esther in particular, and a man named Mordecai. When the termination or the extinction or the annihilation of the Jewish people was right there. And God intervened. And we're going to be looking at 
how it took place and the preparation that had to happen and the things that, things that were taking, uh, taking place to have everything in the right situation. So what does this story have to do with us? Well, I would encourage you to take some time and consider exactly what Jesus did for us. And think about what I just said in the summary of the book of Esther. Here we see God saves his people, Christians, us, from certain death through faith in his son Jesus and makes us triumphant over sin, over Satan, and over death itself. The story's almost a mirror when you look at what God did in saving his chosen people, Israel, and then what God did in choosing to save us through Jesus, his son. As I said, God's not even mentioned in the book. Obviously, Jesus isn't mentioned in an Old Testament book. But God is continually intervening in what's taking place in the lives of these people in accordance to fulfilling his promises. And he had promises. He had made a covenant with his people. All the way back to Adam, he had made a covenant with his people, and there were promises there, and he intervenes to fulfill those promises. And we need to remember, we have great promises that God will be faithful to fulfill. No matter what it is we're going through at any given time, if we could focus on God's fulfilling of those promises and how amazing those promises are, it gives us greater and greater faith and we can have a whole different attitude as we're going through those issues, circumstances, situations. The book Esther is unique in that it is read in the Jewish religion on a particular holiday. They call it Purim, P-U-R-I-M. And Purim is a religious holiday in the Jewish religion that is one month before Passover. So one month before Passover is the Feast of Purim. And it is the feast to celebrate the salvation and the deliverance of Israel at this very moment in time with this little girl, young lady, named Esther. And then it's followed a month later by Passover where the Jewish people celebrate and remember the deliverance of the Israeli people, the Jewish people, from slavery and bondage in Egypt. The book of Esther is read every celebration of Purim. And it's a book about deliverance. And as we go through it, one of the things I hope that we see in this book, in this story, is that it teaches us about God's providence in a very active aspect of everything in human life. Now, before we get going, I want to say, ask this question and answer it. What is, or what do I mean by the providence of God? The providence of God. There can be a lot of different discussions and debates and definitions. I want to share with you what I mean about the providence of God. What I mean is God is a personal God who is creator and Lord. A personal God who is creator and Lord, who is distinct from his creation, and yet he is directly involved with his creation and actively relating to creation at all times. He's a personal God, actively involved. 
He's separate and distinct from his creation because he was not created. He was eternal. And he's actively involved in our lives. I'm not talking about deism where, where God sets the world in motion and then he just steps back and kind of watches it happen. We're not talking about that kind of God. We're not talking about pantheism where everything is somehow God. And we're not talking about God being deterministic, meaning we have no choice, we have no free will to make decisions. Because we do. But I'm talking about the providence of God. Basically, I could say it like this. I believe nothing happens by accident in God's people, in his creation. Nothing happens by accident. Does that mean he causes everything to happen? No. He doesn't cause everything to happen. But in his providence, everything that happens will accomplish his divine purposes and fulfill his promises in his time. So when I look back in my life, I can look at some things and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe I survived that moment. I can't believe how close we came to this, fill in the blank. I don't believe it was an accident. I don't believe I was just lucky. I believe it was the providence of God working in the life of his creation, me or you, even before I was a Christian, to accomplish his purposes and his plans and fulfill his promises. So I just want to make that clear. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about the book of Esther teaching us about the providence of God and how we need to apply these things to our own lives. So we're going to be reading the story and talking about the story. Starting in Esther chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I'm I'm using the New Living Translation this time. I hardly ever use it, but I like the way it read as a story. It says this. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes. Now, a lot of your translations will have another name for him there. Ahasuerus. King Xerxes and him are the same person, okay? And it's easier for me to say Xerxes. It says, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled the empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa, the capital of his kingdom. And it says, in the third year of his reign, These are some of the specific points that history documents that this all historically actually took place. It says, in the third year of reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as the princes and nobles of the province. The celebration lasted 180 days. Now that's a party. 180 days. Six months, they partied celebrated. And at the end of that 180 days, it says, a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and the splendor of his majesty. And when it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all his people. Now, not just the rich, the wealthy, the nobles, the princes, not just his military leaders. Now it was for everybody in Susa that wanted to come, the rich and poor alike. And he says he, he was all over, he ordered a banquet. From the greatest to the least, who were in the fortress of Susa, who were in the capital city. It lasted for seven days. It's quite a banquet. And was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings. 
They were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings that were embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine, reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, how many ever went to a party like this? By the edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking. For the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as they wanted. There's some interesting things historically that, I, that are kind of assumptions from historical records. But it talked about the drinking and the drunkenness. And in this really warped mindset, when there was big decisions to be made, oftentimes they would get drunk and hammered first because they had some kind of mindset that because their mind is whatever, they'd make better decisions. Sounds like us, doesn't it? I mean, some of you. And drink all you want, serve them as much as they want, look at the wealth, look at the opulence, look at the excess of all of these things. A little background before I go into those scriptures. The Jewish people, Israel, had been taken into exile by Babylon in 586 B.C. That is almost 100 years before this event is taking place. So they had been in Babylon. So the Jews that were alive in Susa at this time, they would have been born while in exile. They would have never lived back in Judea or in Jerusalem. They were there. And after being in exile, taken into exile in 586 B.C., Uh, by the Babylonian Empire. In 539 B.C., Cyrus defeated Babylon. You don't need to remember the dates. Don't need to remember any of that, except at this point that that Cyrus then told the Jews, go ahead, go back home. Some of them did. Some of them went back at different times. If you read other books of the Bible, some of them went back in, in different groups. But some of them chose not to go back. Why wouldn't they? Well, because they had been born, for example, in Susa. This is where they were from. It really wasn't their home, according to the promises of God, but it's where they were at. So some of them stayed there, and that's the situation we're going to see with Esther and this man named Mordecai. They had stayed there. It was a time where Xerxes, it was a time of powerful, powerful, powerful kings. What the king said happened period. And the kingdom was huge that was taking place. And this is taking place in about 483 B.C., the third year of his reign as king. History shows that this huge banquet and celebration was a kind of a precursor in preparing his soldiers. Remember who was invited all the princes and nobles from these different provinces, all of the military leaders of the Medes and Persians, because the king had an ulterior motive. He wanted them to see his amazing, tremendous wealth, his power, because he was planning to attack and try to conquer Greece. He wasn't satisfied with what he had from India to Ethiopia. He wanted to conquer Greece. And he would promise 
all those that helped in the conquering of Greece, he would reward with material goods. Thus, some of the reasons for all of this big show of wealth and opulence. And as you can see, it was a celebration with no restraint. Without ruining the story of Esther, it's interesting that the book of Esther starts with this huge banquet and celebration, this powerful king putting on this feast, and then it ends with another feast of deliverance for the Jewish people. It's a supernatural thing that happens. You know, this story, this story is so amazing. As you go through it, you have to decide, this is too amazing to be true, this is unbelievable, or it's God. Because what we see orchestrated in this book of Esther, there is no way humankind could have caused the events to occur the way they did. Going to verse 9. The scene has been set and trouble is brewing. Verse 9 says, At the same time, so at the same time this crazy party is going on over here for all these important men, the queen is having a party for the ladies. It says, At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, he told seven eunuchs who attended him, Mahuman, Bizha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, and Zaither, and Carcass. He took seven eunuchs to bring Queen Vishta to him. Make sure she has on her royal crown on her head. And here's his reason. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. This man had been showing off all of his wealth. Now he wanted to show off his beautiful living trophy, his queen. Why did he send seven eunuchs to invite one woman? Well, in all likelihood, because the queen would usually go be transported from one spot to another in those couches that they would carry with the curtains on the side. And those seven would be sufficient to carry her there. So, the queen. Well, but when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. Imagine that. Can't imagine my wife not wanting to do that. And this made the king furious, and he burned with anger. He immediately consulted with his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and customs. And the Persian laws and customs were followed to the detail. And that's an insignificant thing in this comment here, in this verse, but it's very significant as God's story unfolds. So he called these men to ask him for advice. The names of these men were Karshena, Shethar, Admaha, Tarshish, Meherez, Marcina, and Mamukan, seven nobles of Persia and Media. And they met with the king regularly and held the highest position in the empire. What must be done to Queen Vashti? 
The king demanded, What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? And Mamukin answered the king and his nobles, Queen Vashta has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout the empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands. And when they learn that Queen Vashta has refused to appear before the king, before this day out, day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. Talk about women issues. So if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked few insignificant words that take on a huge significance as the story unfolds that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. The king and his nobles thought this made good sense. So he followed Mamukin's counsel. He sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. None of the men dare say amen. (laughs) When you look at what's taking place here, it's like, What's this got to do with anything? We got a king and a queen in some foreign land 2,500 years ago. What's the point? God is in preparation for fulfilling his promises to his people. When we look at some of these things, even read it, it's like some of the words I pointed out as being insignificant. You could read right past it. Wait till you see how significant they are. How many things are in our lives right now that are going on? on a daily basis. And we're asking questions, God, where are you? God, why don't you answer me? God, why don't you do something? What we're saying is, God, I'm so darn much smarter than you. Why don't you listen to me and get this over with? And we're not seeing the fingerprints of God on everything that's taking place in our lives. He is fulfilling a purpose and a plan in his people. One of the things that a number of years ago we went through the story the Bible, called the story. And one of the things that we talked about was how God's story has already been written. And our story is being unfolded within his story. It's a time of preparation. We can't see what's going on, except it just looks strange. It's a tragic human event for Vashti. She was the queen. The way that they're talking about the men and the women, from a human point of view, we go, oh, thank goodness, that's gone. But in God's eyes, he is setting the stage for deliverance. We just don't see it yet, but that's what's taking place. In Esther 2, the story amps up. Starting in verse 1, but after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. 
It just starts out after his anger had subsided. What we need to know is a couple years had passed. He had tried to go and conquer Greece and got his rear end kicked. And now he was back home. And he's sitting in his palace, probably remembering his gorgeous, beautiful wife, who was queen, who in a drunken stupor, he made a new law that what? Could never be revoked. And that law was that the queen would never come in the sight of the king ever again. What do you do? The king is unhappy. It says, so his personal attendants suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Now, there was a movie called Esther. Did anybody see it? One or two people, a few people. In the movie, Esther was this beautiful, mature lady. That's probably not true. In all likelihood, many of the historians think that Esther was probably about 16 years old. But they were young virgins. And he says, we want to go out and search the entire empire for find, to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring those beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Hegez, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young women, woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. Just, just think about what we just heard in this story. Aren't you shocked the king was pleased with this advice? What about these poor, young, virgin girls? What about the girl we're going to be introduced to in just a moment named Esther? And notice, from the, from the position of, well, things were orchestrated, notice how subjective it is. Whoever most pleases the king. I mean, if you lined up a hundred beautiful virgins and tried to predict which one would please the king, how subjective would that be? Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Who knows? But yet, Esther is put in place. Verse 5, at that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai. The son of Yair, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was a descendant of Kish, and Shimei. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. That's the group that I'm talking about hundreds of years before. They had, hundred years before, had been exiled. His family had come. This man had a very, very beautiful and lovely young cousin. Her name was Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther was, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. We see Mordecai and Esther introduced here. And the role that they're going to play in the unfolding of God delivering his people from death and extinction. Esther is the recording of the events that took place for God's people, his covenant people. And it's a story about how he's going to fulfill his promises to us. 
is there any application for us? What kind of application there can there be to us? These are foreign, foreigners in the land. Susa was not their home. They had been taken exile by Babylon. Some were freed by Cyrus and went back. Others chose to stay. But they still weren't home in the promised land that God had covenanted for his people. All these things that are taking place in spite of the promises of God for his people. How is it applicable to us? In a sense, we're all exiles. This is not our home. If we've accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, what does the Bible tell us? We're nothing but sojourners here on this earth. Where is our home? Our home is in heaven. We have a certain promise of a, a home in heaven where there is perfect peace, prosperity, health, joy, etc., etc., etc. It's the promise of God for his people, his chosen people that have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We were exiles. We were separated from God because of sin. We were under the power of sin and death until God intervened and he interceded for his people, us, by sending Jesus Christ, his only son, to earth to take all the wrath of God, the punishment of God, all those things that we deserve because of sin. And he put it on his son, and he provided a way of deliverance for us. But you know what? In a very real sense, you and I are still exiles. Mordecai and Esther could have went back to Jerusalem, but they hadn't. They were still exiled. We have a certain promise that one day we will be in our heavenly home. We will be in the presence of God forever. We have been set free from sin, death, Satan. We have been set free. But, in a sense, we are still in exile. We are living in a fallen world. The providence of God is very real, but a fallen world is messy and ugly and at times painful. But we as his children have the certain promise that this isn't our home. Our promise is a home in heaven with him. And if we can keep that reality, the promise of God, and the certainty of his faithfulness towards that promise, no matter what we're going through, we can live with joy in the midst of pain and suffering. We can live with peace in the midst of chaos. If we keep the promises of God in focus if we understand the perfect world is coming. We just don't see all the things that are taking place. Waiting while in exile is not easy. Amen? It's just not easy. Anybody who tries to tell you that because we're a Christian, everything's supposed to be easy, smooth sailing, I don't know where they live, but they don't live here. They don't live here in this earth. They don't live in this fallen world that we are still a part of. Starting in verse 9, it says, Hege was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. God is at work. We don't know for sure, but if they brought one from each province, that's 127 beautiful versions. And they maybe brought more. We don't know, but Esther is singled out. Every step of the way, God's favor is on her because He is writing her story into his story. 
He is writing out the plan and starting to fulfill the plan of deliverance of his people, and Esther has a role to play. He quickly ordered a special manual for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. But it's still in a harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the country courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening. Mordecai understands there is potential danger for the Jewish people. He is telling Esther, don't tell them you're Jewish. Don't tell them about your family. Keep those things hidden and secret. Why? Well, we don't know what Mordecai knew. But as it turns out, it was very significant. Keeping the identity a secret. And then we see the personal touch. What father? Mordecai is the adopted father of Esther. And as we read the story, we can tend to just forget what must have been. Try to be Esther. Try to be Mordecai. Put yourself in their place. This young girl that you love, who knows, 16, 17, 18 years old, that you've loved, that you've taken care of, has now been taken from you. Put in the king's harem where they have to go through this ridiculous beauty treatment stuff for a year. And then when their name is called, they go in and sleep with this perverted king. One night. And then you go back to the next harem where the concubines are kept. And there you are. For the rest of your life, unless the king chooses to invite you back by name. This is what this young girl that Mordecai loves so much is going through. And this poor young girl. You know, she was displaced. Her family was displaced when they were taken into exile. Her parents are killed and die. She's adopted into this family, and now she's going through all of this. How in the world would you not ask the question you and I always ask so often when we're in the midst of trouble? Why me? Why me? Mordecai's heart's got to be broken. He knows what's going to happen. It's been an edict made by the king. It's been written in the book. He knows what's going to happen to this young girl. And he see him walking by the courtyard gate every day so he can check on her. Who wouldn't be doing that to try to check on this young world? The thing that we need to remember is God is at work in this messy, fallen world, even when we don't see it. Verse 12. Before each young woman was taken into the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. And it was time for her to go to the king's palace. She was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. That evening she was taken to the king's private rooms and the next morning she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There she would be under the care of Shahaskaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. 
I don't know how good his memory was, but if there's 127 virgins, what are the odds of remembering those names? In the natural, none of this is very feasible. Esther was, well, let me see. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, who was Mordecai's uncle. Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin, Esther. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Hegei, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. Everywhere she went, by everyone, the favor of God was on her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in the early winter of the seventh year of his reign. Remember, the story started in the third year of his reign. Four years have passed. A a loss in war to Greece had taken place. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials declaring a public holiday for the provinces and the giving generous gift to everyone, even after the only young women had been transferred to the second harem and Mordecai had become a palace official. Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's directions. Just think, all these preparations for one night were with one night with the king. One of the things that really strikes me as I just think about and read this story and try to imagine is God knew what was coming. There is nothing godly about what young Esther was having to go through. Nothing. What are we supposed to learn from that? That God doesn't care about morality? Of course not. There's a more important lesson, and I really believe the lesson we're to learn here as much as anything is God is providentially working in the lives of his people. He's involved in our lives. No matter what we're going through, he's involved. Instead of asking why me, ask why not me. Be looking for the fingerprints of God. He's there. He promises he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. Be looking for these things where God is moving, where God is acting. You know, here he was in this situation with Esther, the Jewish people, all the things that were going to take place in the very near future. And God used this ugliness to bring about his purpose. It happened again. If we fast forward the life of Jesus. He used a bunch of ugly religious leaders, a bunch of ugly political leaders. He used an ugly piece of wood called the cross. There was nothing good about that to the natural mind. It was what was taking place in a fallen, messy world. And yet Jesus went to that cross and died for our sins to deliver his people. We need to remember God uses lots of things, even though we don't understand and we don't seem to think It's the best way to do it. In verse 21, it says, One day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and they plotted to assassinate him. Mordecai heard about the plot, gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made, 
Mordecai's story was found to be true. The two men were hanged on a tree. And this was all recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Mordecai, because of who he was in relationship to Esther, had been elevated to a position of some kind of prominence sitting at the king's gate. You didn't just get to sit there if you wanted to. You had to be somebody of importance. And notice the fact that what took place was all written down in the book of Chronicles. Again, one of those things you could read right past, seemingly insignificant, but does it ever play a huge, significant role in what's going to take place? Notice also that Mordecai receives no recognition and no reward from the king for doing this. Again, an insignificant thing to notice, but as you read the rest of Esther, you see how significant this becomes in God's deliverance. The question we have for us this morning is, what insignificant appearing things are going on in our lives right now that are going to be hugely significant in our part of God's story? He has a plan. You know, we think of things that take place, an opportunity to serve or an opportunity to do this or that, or something happens to us that we don't like and we have to work our way through it as best we can. We think of things, you know, we've got a team going to go on a short-term mission trip to Columbia. Yeah, that's kind of nice, not that significant. We have no idea how significant that event is going to be in the lives of those who go, in the lives of the church. We're going to see Mustard Seed Kids Child Care Center operating in a building that's Victory Church. Well, that's nice. Sure costing us a lot of money. I hope it works. What's the significance? Why are you doing it? I don't know the fullness of the significance of what God is doing. All I know is there are a lot of things going wrong, a lot of things that are hard, and all of these things in our lives. What's going on? What is God doing? Look for his fingerprints. Esther is a book about deliverance and God's providence. Esther has put in this position of unbelievable influence from being a young virgin, just living her life as a Jew in a foreign land, to the queen of the most powerful man in the world. How'd she get there? Well, you know the first part of the story. Look at the events that had to take place for her to be there. And they weren't all good and they weren't all pretty, and they weren't all holy and righteous, but God's using all of them. The seemingly insignificant play a huge role in God's significant plan. God's fingerprints are all over your story, too. We've got to look for those fingerprints. We are all preparation, in preparation for his presence. Close with verse 8, Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. We know that God causes everything to work together for good. Notice it doesn't say God causes everything to happen. It says God causes everything to work for good. We have free will even in God's providence. Your story is... Unfolding, just like Esther's did. You've been going to live by faith, live by sight. I want to encourage you to take some time. Read the book of Esther. It's not that many chapters. It's an amazing story. And it has an important thing for each one of us in our own lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the examples 
that we find in your word. God, I thank you that we see that you are faithful to your promises. God, I am thankful that we see that you use insignificant people just like us to accomplish significant things in your story. God, I pray you would help us to have spiritual eyes and ears to see and hear what it is you're doing in the lives of people around us and in our lives, that we might see the fingerprint of God, your fingerprint in our lives. God, that it would be a faith-building thing that would help us in those very difficult times as we live in this messy, fallen world to walk by faith and not by sight. Father, we pray these things that you would receive all the glory in it. And I pray, God, also that you would watch over us as we go our separate ways. Bless us. Keep us safe. Help us to have those amazing divine appointments where we can share the love of Jesus with other people. In Jesus' name, amen.